0: My name is Todd Bolander, and I'm one of the elders here at Gulf Coast Community Church, and it's my pleasure to speak to you tonight about authority and leadership and servanthood and basically the way we understand the Bible to talk about the folks in the local church community who are responsible for the way the church runs and how decisions are made and things of that nature, what those qualifications are, what sort of people the church ought to be interested in having in those positions, and how, just in general, how the New Testament talks about those issues. So I'll go ahead and get us started with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you're good and that you haven't left us without direction and that you've called us into community To serve you, to grow in community, to work out all those one another's in the New Testament in a community, and that you've not left us without direction, that you've provided us with gifts. And so we ask that this evening you would open up your word and make it clear to us what it is that you're doing, and we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, my name is Todd Bolander, and I'm one of the elders here, and part of the idea of foundations is that you get to see most, if not all, of the elders of the church, each in his own role, sort of the things that he's good at or interested in, and I'm not so sure that I can claim that I'm necessarily good at this part of things, but I'm certainly interested in it, and that's because I am a nerd, a nerd on several levels. I don't claim to be cool or hip or somehow persuasive in my speech, just that I'm, I'm pretty nerdy, and so that qualifies me to teach about polity. And by polity, I mean, how is the church governed? What sort of government, what sort of authoritative structures, what sort of way do decisions get made in a church? And so I'm comfortable poring over books... I can read uh, New Testament Greek and a couple other old languages as well as a few new ones because I'm a nerd. And so somehow that lands me the privilege of talking to you about probably what is, I don't know, maybe the least exciting thing that I could talk to you about as far as the church. But one uh, something that inevitably, as you move from visitor to interested to member is going to make a difference. It's going to make a difference whether or not you understand how decisions are made around here. It's going to make a difference that you understand how the church is governed. People come from all sorts of backgrounds and some from totally unchurched backgrounds and just perhaps bring in the, the understanding of wherever that person came from, whatever political structure that person came from, other people come from different denominations and have one view of how a church ought to be run or a completely different one. You know, the person sitting next to you in the pew may from, be from a totally different church background and think that the church ought to be run in a totally different way. And so, to try to get us all on the same page so you understand how we view it here we 're going to talk about that tonight. Uh, our purpose Our purpose for this evening is to examine christ 's plan for leadership in the church and how leadership is to function within a local church, how leadership is to function within a local church and I talk about it in terms of a local church because as you 'll see, I think it 'll become clear. We don't believe necessarily in any hierarchy. That is to say, we believe the New Testament doesn't paint a picture where there's a hierarchy outside of the apostles who no longer are with us, who are only with us in writings at this point. So there is no regional or worldwide, we don't believe that the New Testament teaches that that's the case. Authority and accountability are topics that people in our culture don't typically think of in positive terms. The Bible, however, speaks comfortably both about authority and accountability quite frequently. If you look through it, you'll see words about authority. You'll see words about judgment. You'll see words about, and by judgment, it's another way to say accountability, that each of us is accountable for his or her actions. The Bible talks about those things quite comfortably, and so God is the one source of authority in the universe, and he has delegated portions of that authority to people for his own purposes. From the very beginning, God delegated part of his authority over creation to Adam. The first People were to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, according to Genesis one twenty six. Still, even though God had placed some of that authority over man, God maintained his authority over humans, and the creature was still bound to the Creator's authority. And even before God had given Adam a wife... He bound him by a commandment not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he gave him some authority to do some things and maintained other authorities to himself, God did. So it's sort of a a first image of the way God works, that God, being the ultimate authority, can dispense, at his pleasure, for his purposes, authority to other people to do certain things. So my point is that... That image, that biblical image of authority, tends to be a far cry from what we experience day to day. That people, Christians and otherwise, in positions of leadership, sometimes have the view that they can do what they want, and I'm the boss, and you don't get to ask me, you just have to deal with it. And other people... Christians and non Christians, especially in our society here in Western culture, United States of America, have this view of, you're not the boss of me, don't tell me what to do. And neither one of those perspectives is actually biblically correct. That there's a different way, there's a biblical view that says God has appointed certain people to authority, and that we do right to understand where we are in those structures. And to be thankful for the way that people do it well and, and maybe even to desire to be in those positions as it comes out. So we want to look at how is God organizing the church. The first point I want us to look at tonight is that leadership is one of the gifts that God gives to the church according to Ephesians 4. Verses 7 through 16, if you want to turn there, we'll take a look at those verses. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the first point I want us to see is that, of course, each one of you, each member of the church, has gifts. Christ has equipped each one of us as he indwells us through the Spirit with gifts to serve the body. Each one of you has a particular gifting series of gifts that can serve Your fellow members can serve other people in building them up. That's the way the Lord Jesus has decided to do it, is to pour out different gifts on different people. And that's important. That's not to be understated. But it isn't to miss the point that also Christ has given gifts to the body corporately, that Ephesians 4 makes the point that Christ also, in his ascension, decided that there would be certain offices reserved for certain people and that those offices are also intended to equip the body in a different way. Not in the same way as each one of us encouraging each other day by day, but in a slightly different way. So Ephesians 4 states that Christ did not leave his body without direction at his ascension. He gave leaders as gift to the church to care for its members. It was the wisdom and generosity of Christ to provide leaders to the, to the church. Despite some views, the idea of leadership in the church, the idea of hierarchy, it's not the invention of a few old white guys you know, in the medieval period or the late Roman period, who sat around and decided there would be leadership or hierarchy. That the gifts of apostleship and leadership were actually designated by Christ, according to Ephesians 4. It was Jesus who selected apostles, and according to the New Testament, it is Jesus who sovereignly supplies his people with men who are gifted to lead his body. So the different leaders given to the church are gifts provided to express that loving care of Christ for his bride. Godly Christian leaders are a demonstration of the Lord's kindness to his people because he wishes his church and its members to remain protected and to grow into spiritual maturity. That Jesus, and this will come up again a couple of times, but Jesus as a shepherd, a protector... Over sheep is looking to continue to protect those sheep even when he's not there physically to do it himself. Paul points out that Christ intends leaders to equip the saints for ministry, so to carry out that individual one on one ministry that all of us, each one of us, is expected to be doing as Christians, as disciples of the Lord, to equip and to strengthen the church on a whole, as an entire corporate entity for its mission, to protect it from error and to point believers to the head of the church, that is, Jesus Christ. So the gifts of leaders are central to Jesus' plan for growing up any church. When Jesus appoints leaders, it's to grow up the church. It's to equip members of the church. It's to further the mission. To grow the community of saints. So how leadership functions in the church, it's kind of an important matter. If, he's, if that's the way he's growing the church, if that's the way he's protecting the church, if that's the way he's equipping the members, then it's important the way that those people are put into office, how we identify those people, because it has an effect, a broader effect. So the conclusion that we take is that God has appointed leaders within the local church to enable the building of that church and the spread of the gospel. And God's desire is for churches to experience maturity, stability, and fruitfulness that result when leadership and care are extended by gifted leaders with proven character. Now tonight, I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about leadership And although there are many forms of it, many forms from one person discipling another to being an encouragement to even confronting a brother or sister who's in sin. There are all levels of leadership. But tonight when I say leadership I'm talking about elders, that is to say those who are responsible for the direction of the local church, the local assembly of believers. Now, what I'm sort of notorious and scandalously leaving out here is a discussion of deacons. So if you come from a background where deacons are part of that leadership role, I just want to make clear that we understand that deacons are an extension of pastoral care. That is to say that deacons, as far as we understand it, and there could be an entire evening on this, but as far as we understand it, deacons could be an extent are an extension of pastoral care. They certainly are a leadership, a servant leadership office in the church. And the New Testament makes it clear that that the diaconate is an office in the church. But when I talk about leadership tonight, I'm talking about elders, pastors, what you would understand as pastors typically. What when When guys get up in the front of the church on Sunday mornings and they say, Hi, my name is, and I'm one of the pastors here. Or, my name is, and I'm one of the elders here. Or, one of the guys you've met over the past few weeks, I'm one of the elders here. That's the office I'm talking about when I talk about leadership of the church. And I think it will become clear the distinction I'm making. that I'm talking about an authoritative, decision-making, doctrine-protecting role that also involves care. But uh, when we talk about deacons, we're not so much talking about people who set doctrine, policy, that sort of thing. When I say leadership, I'm not so much talking about deacons, in case you come from one of those backgrounds, like I did, where that was an important leadership role in that sense. So let's turn our attention to church leadership in itself. Those offices that I am talking about, the eldership, by all Evidence given us in the New Testament, local church leadership in the New Testament, was a shared endeavor. New Testament leadership, and particularly eldership, was not, a, was not singular, but plural. Plurality is the way we describe the fact that the New Testament consistently presents more than one leader, was in leadership position in New Testament churches. So in order to understand the evidence, we have to first understand how the New Testament talks about the office of those who make decisions, protect doctrine, teach the Bible in the local church. So the first point I want to make is that leaders in Christ's church are called elders throughout the New Testament. So that you understand how we understand it here at Gulf Coast Community Church, and it's not unique to us. If you've been a member or understood any church that was elder-led or Presbyterian in its organization, I'm not necessarily saying the Presbyterian denominations, but Presbyterian in its organization, then you're generally talking about the same thing. It's not unique here at Gulf Coast Community Church. But Despite the tendency in many church traditions to refer to the leaders of the church as pastors, the New Testament word most often used for those in leadership positions is actually elders. We could talk about the Greek word, it's, it's presbyteros, and hence the name Presbyterian style of leadership. That just means, presbyteros just means older Well, it can be used that way. In in Greek, the word presbyteros just means someone who's older, so it's an older person. So then the New Testament authors use it to mean an elder. They just, you know, and that's that's a classical term. It's a, it's a normal way to refer to a person in position. The presbyteroi of Israel in New Testament times were those ruling elders, as we would call it. That same that's why we use the word elders is those rule those ruling people who made authoritative decisions in the covenant community. So similarly that word just got brought into New Testament believers. So that's why some churches, some denominations use that term to describe their government structure. And that would be pretty similar to ours here. That would be pretty similar to ours here without the hierarchy of outside of the local church. So when someone in a Presbyterian community is, is talking about the, their presbytery, they're usually talking about more than just their local church. They're talking about a larger structure, but we aren't. We aren't. So we use the words pastor and elder basically interchangeably around here. You'll hear the same guys on Sunday mornings get up and say, I'm such and such, I'm a pastor here, or I'm such and such, I'm an elder here. We just use them interchangeably. And if you look at our Constitution and bylaws, as you look through it, if you read through it, and if you're looking for the word pastor, you're just not going to find it very often. I think it only shows up like once in, in the whole thing because we use the word elders I say that to you so you understand as you go forward. When we're talking about elders, we're talking about those men that you normally consider pastors. The handout contains a bunch of references, all sorts of passages. We could go into it. Each one of them is an example of a use of the word elder, basically. It's throughout the New Testament. And pastor only shows up a handful of times. And almost every time it does, it actually shows up in the same passages as the word elder. And so we understand them to be synonymous. So anytime you think of pastor, you should be thinking of elder, at least from a biblical perspective. When you're reading the New Testament and you see the word elders, they're talking about pastors of, of a local church or of um, a local congregation. Take a look at Acts 20. If you uh, have your Bible, you want to look at Acts 20 verses 17 and then later on uh, we'll skip in between. What's happening here in Acts 20 is that Paul is traveling along Asia Minor and he's on his way to Jerusalem and he stops off and when he's at Miletus, verse 17, he calls for the elders, notice the elders there, the presbyteroi, of the church at Ephesus. He calls for their elders. And then he tells them, now I'm skipping forward to verse 28. So he's talking to elders, and he says to them, keep watch over yourselves, and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now that word overseers there is episkopoi, where we get the English word bishop. So if you've ever heard of a a bishop or the Episcopalian tradition where there's a hierarchy, they just get this from the same word where he's talking about elders once again. Next sentence, he says, Be shepherds which is our word pastors, be shepherds of the church of God, which he has bought with his own blood. Poimeno. So to be shepherds, he uses the verbal form of the word pastor, pastor of the flock of God. So all in this same structure, it's Paul calling for the elders, tells them to be bishops, and to be pastors all at the same time. Notice all those terms interchangeably. So although our tradition treats them like they're different, or at least many of our traditions, I know mine did, the New Testament authors use them interchangeably as though they're all the same thing. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. There too, you'll see the same thing. It's not unique with Paul. It's not like this is a one-shot thing. It's not like this only happens a couple of times in the Bible. This is, this is consistent. If you look at 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4, he starts it off, to the elders among you. Once again, the presbyteroi. I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Verse 2, be shepherds, same word, pastors, be shepherds. In the Greek, poimano. Be shepherds. Pastor, some of your translations may say tend or feed. Anyone have those sorts of things? No? We're all good? Shepherds? everyone seeing shepherds? Okay. No? What do you have? Okay, what does yours say? Okay, and then in verse 2, what does he say? Feed, right, yeah, good. So, that's, that's that verb, feed the flock. See how they've changed shepherd into feed the flock, which is what a shepherd would do. Okay, which is what a shepherd would do. But in the Greek, it's that same verb that Paul uses to say shepherd the flock, or more technically, it's Luke recording Paul's words in Acts. But... That same word. Yeah. Aaron. One says presbyters. In <laughs> even better, even closer to the Greek. Some there are plenty of words in the Bible where they just leave it in the Greek as best as they can because decoding it causes headaches. Yeah. Historically when things like the word so sidetrack, here we go. The word baptize itself. The Greek word baptizo means to immerse something, to put water on it, to but if you're in a tradition where people don't know whether or not to totally dunk people or just pour water on them or to sprinkle them, you don't want to translate it from Greek, so you just come up with the English word baptize, because hey, baptizo, let's just make that English and then we don't have to say what it means, we can just say baptize. So, sometimes that's the same sort of thing that's going on. We just, let's not, let's just leave it as Greek as we can, and that way people can decide for themselves later what the implications are, but we leave it up to them. So, that's absolutely right. Presbyters makes perfect sense in that, in that context. Okay, so, be shepherds, verse 2, 1 Peter 5, verse 2, be shepherds... Uh, Or feed the flock, feed God's flock that is under your care. And then next, watching over them, episcopeo, to be a bishop, to watch over them. So these three terms that we hear commonly throughout church tradition, as though they're different offices, the New Testament authors use them interchangeably of the same group of, group of people when talking to them. And he's talking about local churches. So in Paul's example, specifically with Luke, it's the group at Ephesus. Peter doesn't make that as clear here, but he probably has in mind all of the local groups and the various churches he's writing to spread out around the region of Asia Minor and Europe. Also, um, let's see here. This is the same term that's used by Paul in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 when he's outlining the qualification of elders, when he talks about overseer, episkopoi. And that's why it's important to notice that episkopoi is in both of these passages. Because in the qualifications for elders... He also uses, Paul uses overseer in both of those. It's just important to see that the New Testament consistently talks about all of these people as the same people. They're not necessarily different offices or positions within the church. I believe on your handout there you'll see Daniel Aiken, a quotation from him. Is that correct? In the New Testament churches... God raised up and qualified by the work of the Holy Spirit men who were appointed to exercise oversight over and spiritual care for the churches. These men are called elders, bishops, pastors. The three terms are interchangeable and all are used of the office, of the same one office. The New Testament never specifies the number of elders, though the term appears most always, almost always in the plural. Their character, integrity, and maturity are always of primary importance. So our conclusion in many respects is that the evidence from the New Testament text overwhelmingly demonstrates that the terms presbyteros, episkopos, and poimen, that is elder, overseer, or bishop, and pastor, are used interchangeably to refer to the same office. And that what those words do is referred to the same office from different vantage points. An elder speaks of the office itself, the position, and the sense of austerity, the sense of maturity and wisdom that should be involved with the office. Overseer describes that responsibility, that protective nature, that being... Yes, there's some authority in there, but it's just as much as there is authority, there is responsibility. So, just, just so that we're clear, the idea is, if you think of an overseer, just hold close to that, the idea of a shepherd. A shepherd is in charge of sheep, but not so that sheep will, I don't know, wash his car, Right, That doesn't make any sense. Or clean up the pen on their own. That doesn't make any sense. But he's in charge of them to protect them from wolves. And to keep them from wandering off. Those sorts of things. To grow them up. And then the last one, the pastor, also the shepherd, the idea is Care is taking care of these people who need nurturing, who require their loving attention. The New Testament speaks of this same office, the same position from all these different angles. Now the second idea that's important for understanding the way we do it here is that elders are always spoken of in the plural in the New Testament. I know that I came from a church tradition where there was the guy. And that guy was the pastor, and he was like the CEO, and he made the decisions. Pastor led church, that's right. He was the guy, he made the decisions, he had his assistants, he hired the people he wanted, and for some reason, the deacons were the bad guys. You know, they were the ones that always fought with him in uh, board meetings. I don't know if I, that was my that was my experience. I don't know if any of you. I won't say what denomination I came from way back in the day, but there were always jokes about deacons, as though they somehow held up progress, and the pastor wanted to get all these things done. Maybe it's like the president and Congress or something. The president, I really care, and it's just Congress's fault that nothing gets done. You know, that sort of that sort of dynamic. But the New Testament doesn't really paint that picture. doesn't really say that that's what churches were like. So go ahead and turn in Acts. Acts chapter 14 verse 23. What you'll see is repeatedly the New Testament talks about elders as plural per city. In other words, per church. It wasn't Yes, we make a few assumptions here. We don't assume that there were multiple churches in every town in Asia Minor to which Paul went. So that's an assumption we make. I think it's a pretty safe one that there weren't a bunch of churches. We're, we're accustomed to a bunch of churches in every city. We're used to going to towns in rural America, in fact, where there are more churches than there are gas stations, those sorts of things. That wasn't the case in the New Testament. All right? That wasn't the case. They they typically had a church per town. So when he talks about the elders of a city, he's talking about a church. Looking at Acts chapter 14, verse 23, notice it would say, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, elders in every church, plural, that this is the dynamic we'll see over and over again in the New Testament, that there are plural elders, not the CEO, one pastor-led model, but a plurality, a group of elders. And that's, that's what we're convinced here is the model of church leadership. Acts 20, once again, the same passage about Paul traveling on his way to Jerusalem, stopping off. In Asia Minor at Miletus, notice in verse 17 of chapter 20, it says, From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders, plural, of the church, singular. Elders, plural, of the church, singular. And Titus 1, verse 5, Paul writing to Titus, talking to him about his mission there in Crete, about why he left him behind. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders, plural again, elders in every town as I directed you. Elders in every town. And then once again in 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4. Peter starts off by saying, to the elders, plural, among you. And then the verb in Greek, I know that our verbs in English don't distinguish between singular and plural when it comes to you. But in Greek, they distinguish between singular and plural. And the verb says, you plural, shepherd God's flock that is under your plural care to the elders among you. So although the New Testament doesn't specifically command church to have plural elders, we are told specifically what the minimum qualifications are. We see over and over again that there are plural elders, and in Titus and in 1 Timothy we're given the qualifications. And so we emphasize having a plurality of elders while not pushing too fast to get a plurality of elders because you don't want to put unqualified people in the position. You have to maintain the qualifications. Yeah, Hope. Um, two questions, well, two, two points. Sure. Um,
1: it sounds like because there's, we're looking at church leadership in terms of plurality, that there's always that opportunity for people to become Pastors or to become elders, that's a hope or that is part of, of the plan. So that's kind of built in for this plurality to exist in church leadership. My other question was, do we find female elders in churches?
0: Uh, both are great questions. Uh let me, give me about half a second to pull up a passage, because I don't want to answer you specifically when I answer this. I'm looking at 1 Timothy 5, and that's not what I want. Let's see here, 1 Timothy 3, sorry. 1 Timothy 3, uh, to answer your first question about if I'm understanding you right, that if we're understanding that there are multiple elders from within a body, that a person can desire that or have that as an aspiration. Is that right?
1: It is possible for any of us who become mature and knowledgeable in following God's way, that um, there is that opportunity and there is that hope that is built into becoming an elder and earning the leadership and organizational...
0: Okay, good. So for the purposes of the interwebs here, um, if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying is it an a is it right to think that any member of the congregation could grow in maturity in order to become an elder? Is that a way to restate your question? Yes. Okay, good. Uh looking at first Timothy three, uh I see Verse 1, the saying is trustworthy, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So in one sense, the answer is absolutely yes. That members of the church are encouraged to grow in maturity, and as the Lord grows anyone into that sort of office, into that level of maturity, Yes, the Lord can equip a person to become... It doesn't require necessarily a specific degree or a specific amount of training as far as we understand it. If you look at the New Testament witness, Paul is finding people from all over the world and the Lord is equipping those people to become leaders all across the Mediterranean to grow his church. So, in that sense... Absolutely, I think that that's the case, and I think that each one of us. To answer your second question, and this is the less popular response, no, we see no evidence in the New Testament that women are provided the office of elder or apostle. However, we do see that women are provided the office Well, the gift of prophecy—if there is such a thing as a New Testament office of prophet—and we're not all clear necessarily on whether or not that's true—that seems to be available. Certainly, the gift of prophet, teacher, and deaconess. We have decided that that is available. That deacon is available to women. Yet
1: in Judaism, we don't. I don't see that kind of. morality or the structure, yet we have female rabbis.
0: Yeah, absolutely, but not in all branches. My own experience of Judaism is that it's only typically Reform Judaism that permits that, and not the more, like, not the Hasidim or the conservative versions. So you're absolutely right that there are certain sects, and that's true even of Christianity, that certain sects of Christianity allow female elders, but we're just not persuaded that the biblical text, in fact, will... While it isn't within the scope of tonight's discussion, I'd be happy to talk with you about why it is we feel that way, which biblical texts we're relying on to hold that position, that we feel that the New Testament rather directly prevents us from allowing that position. So it's not, a, uh, it's not a cultural thing. It's not any sort of, at least as far as we understand it, and it's not an unresearched, just we're adopting it by tradition. It's something that we've looked into as a group of elders and discussed and have some position papers on. I'd be happy to share that with you if you'd like. Okay? Okay. Oh, certainly. It's a totally reasonable question. It's a totally reasonable question. I appreciate that. Let's move on. Elders are plural. elders are the same as pastors. The conclusion then is that all elders, and I'm reading from Alexander Strauch here. Uh, I believe you have that quotation. All elders then must be armed with a knowledge of scripture and able to teach, judge, exhort, admonish, shepherd, and defend the flock against false teachers. Scripture teaches that the entire eldership pastors god flocks God's flock not just. And I can add air quotations to his quotation here, not just the pastor. So when you see, just to break it down for our specific context, yes, Jerry is the pastor, so is Darren, so is Stephen, so is Dave Wilson, so is Pete Micheler. Guys like them and Brian Ida, there are seven of us, and we all are pastors of this church. We all go into making the decisions. We all pray for the sick. We all bring messages. We all teach. We all help guide and and make those sorts of decisions and govern the body under the Lord's over-shepherding as best as we know how. Yes, in many respects, Jerry and Darren are sort of the what I jokingly call the spokesfaces of, of our church. They're kind of the Sunday morning guys, and, and then Stephen also. They're the vocational pastors, what we call the vocational pastors. Those are the guys that we've said as a church, we notice their gifting so strong that we just, as a church, we've all agreed that we don't want you to do some other job. We want you to stay here and do this full-time. And that's, that's the way that works. Whereas the other four of us, we gain our income from some other place. And then on top of that, we come and we teach and we come to meetings and we oversee and we research and we write position papers and we teach classes and those sorts of things in order to serve the body. So those are the non-vocational elders. So there are three vocational elders and there are four non-vocational elders. So we have seven pastors of this church. All right, moving on. So what sort of people do we want in these positions? If this is what they do, what sort of people do we want in this position? these positions? And the main thing to understand is that leadership... If this is what's at stake, if we're talking about people who care for God's flock, if we're talking about Christ appointed people, then character is essential. That character is essential. What we find in both 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, where Paul lists the qualifications, is that an elder what an elder knows, what he knows, does not supersede how he lives. If you look through all of those qualifications, it's only mentioned like once that he ought to be able to teach. And there's an entire list of other things. Like having been a believer for a while. Not, not a drunkard. Not greedy. Not quarrelsome. There are all these character issues. And time in the faith issues. But only one of them that has to do with what he knows. Knowing the right things. So a man must be, I emphasize that word, must be an elder first and foremost. Only then can he do the work of an elder. You can't do an elder's job without being an elder first. It just just doesn't work out. No amount of gifting and talent grants a leader immunity from walking in an upright manner. Elders are to lead lives of integrity, faithfully modeling the biblical standards for the Christian life. No pastor slash elder is sinless, but there should be a consistent display in their lives. Whether you see them at home, in the grocery store, out at the restaurant must be a consistent display in their lives of the character qualities that Paul lists. I think of it this way when I when I talk about it, that what Paul sets for us in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 is sort of like the baseline. This is what we all, all ought to have at least at some basic level to be elder. And then some of these guys ought to have it in spades. Ought to have some of the things... In an abundance where I want to follow them. I want to emulate that person. I want to be like that man. Otherwise, what is he leading? If no one wants to follow you, you're not really leading. And that's what I see in our elders. Is I see guys who all have that baseline and then they have a few of those, at least, if not more, of those categories where, man, I want to be like that guy. I can learn from him. I can learn how to be more hospitable. I can learn how to be more patient. I can learn how to be a better husband by watching the life of this, this man over here. And so they all have that baseline that Paul talks about, and then some of them just exceed it by far. So not only is character a main thing, but it's servant authority. That when we're talking about leaders in the church, we're not talking about the type of military authority where, look, go take that hill, I'll be back here. I can talk about that with some experience. I was in the army for about seven years. I know what that looks like. I know what command authority looks like, where a man who does not know my name... Does not know what I look like. Tells me to go do without understanding what that means for me and my family in direct application. That's not what the Bible is talking about. They're not lording it over as the Bible talks. But we're looking for servant authority. Church leaders are not called to lord it over the sheep just like 1 Peter 5, 3 says. But they are nevertheless called to lead in some fashion. So although Christ has not called church leaders to act like tyrants, the Bible talks about church leaders as though a great amount of authority has been given to them. And I think you have uh, Brian Habig and Les Newsom's quotation there about the fact that, especially in Hebrews, if you look in Hebrews, the Bible is not uncomfortable at all with talking about obeying leaders in the church. The New Testament, in particular, is not shy about saying that members of the church ought to show respect and obedience to those in authority. So just how that authority looks is what differentiates the church from other forms of authority. Church leaders look different from other forms of authority because the leadership is servant leadership. So in Ephesians, back to Ephesians 4, we keep... Spooling back to that one because it's sort of central for what it means for Christ to give gifts. In Ephesians 4, 8-10, through 10, just after we're told that Christ has given us grace gifts, and just before Paul tells us of the role of some who are called to be leaders, he appears to go on this tangent about Jesus coming to the lower earthly regions. It seems like sort of a sidebar. He just sort of talking about apostles and prophets and then just takes takes a right turn somewhere and starts talking about this other thing. Looking at it, 8, 9, and 10, it says, "...when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men." What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. But what we have to understand is that in Paul's mind, this isn't a sidebar. This is making the very point he's trying to make. Is that leadership is about servants. So think of it this way. Yes, Jesus ascended to heaven and gave us gifts, but remember, if he ascended back to heaven, that means he came from heaven first and got rid of all of that to come hang out with us down here for a while. He divested himself of his glory and splendor and all that he had there to be with you and me and to... To come down to these lower earthly regions. That's the same guy. So that means that Paul is putting in a gospel synopsis about the Lord Jesus. Humbling himself and becoming a man first to serve us. And this is the type of leadership. These are the types of gifts that he's then, as he ascended, he gave to us. He gave to his church. And we're to reflect that type of service. That type of divesting ourselves of whatever greatness we may think we have in order to serve others. So leadership in the body of Christ is not about climbing to the top rung of some ladder. Not about achieving some position that gives us greater authority over more believers. But it's about serving each other more. It's that same sort of He who ascended is the same one who first descended. So our conclusion in this is that pastors, elders, overseers are all called to lead the church. And just as a man is called to manage his his own family in love and service, a pastor is called to care for the church by providing caring leadership. Not command leadership. This involves guidance and direction and on occasion, the rare occasion, discipline. But it's caring leadership. So the paradigm for kingdom leadership is servanthood because the care of the sheep is the goal of that leadership. Now, the next point... (laughs) is that leadership is accountable. If it's servant leadership, it must be accountable. Because servants don't just do what they want. Servants don't do what they want. They do what their masters say. So I've put up here, and uh, I believe on your handouts, a series of passages that make it clear that there is no point in Christian walk that has to do with a person just doing what he or she wishes. The Bible is pretty straightforward about that. Romans thirteen one Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Acts 20.28, 20, once again, same discussion with the Ephesian elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer. You didn't choose it. The Holy Spirit appointed you. Serve Him. So God puts people in charge of His servants to provide care and watch out for them. In Luke twelve forty two through forty three, Jesus, the Lord Jesus, tells His apostles that. That who then is a faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. We're all called, elders included, to be serving and to be accountable. We have a derived authority, it's accountable. Elders are subject to the Lord's discipline and will answer for the manner in which they treat God's flock. If you look in the opening chapters of Revelation, Jesus tells John to send letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. The Lord Jesus is walking among the churches as a judge and king, observing the actions of his people and their leaders. And some false teachers are personally addressed and warned of impending punishment. And despite the highly symbolic nature of this book, what shines through is that Christ is intimately aware of what goes on in the church and has great concern for how it's cared for and its purity and the perseverance of its people. So, elders are under the Lord's watchful eye, is what we derive from these texts that The Holy Spirit appoints them. Jesus is walking among them like He walks among the candles, the lampstands in Revelation. He's watching their actions. The Lord is watching us, and we're mindful of that. But also, everything that any elder has is derived. There is no authority outside of holding to the Word of God. Those who depart from the Word... Lose all spiritual authority and must be silenced. And, and I say this I say this every time. I've given this class for the past couple of years. And I say, I say this every time. And I know that I feel the weight of it when I say it. And I'm not sure how, much, how it comes across when I say it. But I want you to hear me clearly. I'm not talking about every little nuance of biblical interpretation. I'm not saying that's grounds for qualification. But if any of the elders... Here at Gulf Coast, apart from the truths of Scripture, the gospel itself, the central things, Jesus' death and resurrection, the supremacy of Christ in all things, God's centrality in the universe, the Word of God is authoritative. Those sorts of central truths. If you, if you hear us or see in us departure from those truths, remove us from office or go somewhere else. Please please, please, go somewhere healthy. Because at that point, the elders have stopped being healthy and have stopped doing what the Lord has called them to do. Now, there are some things that are up for dispute, but those things aren't up for dispute. And so what things we can agree about when we're sober-minded and we're clear-headed and we're, we're not in the heat of things, we ought to remember when when things get difficult. At those points, please, for your own sake, I say this as an elder, get rid of, if I do it, get rid of me. If someone else does it, get rid of that man or go someplace where they're healthy. I say that with a smile on my face because, <laughs> because I believe it. I'm not trying to be heavy-handed, but it's serious and true. All right. And here's one thing that perhaps, and this will be the last thing, leadership authority is affirmed by the congregation. Now this takes a couple of steps to follow with me, and, and I understand that. If so you understand Matthew 18 is talking about church discipline, and sometimes what many people don't know is the passage about where two or three are gathered in my name, there I will be also. He's actually talking about when elders kick a person out of the church, and, and that's the context of those passages. What I want you to understand is that if that's true, so it takes a step in logic here. If it's true that you have to go through the steps of congregational discipline, that if a person is sinning, then we've got to go to that person individually, and then we've got to go with some witnesses, and then eventually we bring them to the elders. And then even if they don't listen to the elders of the assembly, the elders of the church, we bring them before the church as a whole for discipline. then where ultimately is the question of discipline seated? Certainly with Christ, but where in that Jesus' chain of events does it end up before the final of the congregation? That's right. You see how that, that track goes. You go individually, then you go with a witness. Then you call the elders, and then if they don't listen to the elders, you bring them before the church, Jesus says in Matthew 19. That means the final vote of whether or not that person is included in the congregation rests with the congregation. Okay. At least that's a conclusion we draw from that. That according to Jesus, it's a congregation of a whole. You try to keep it as minimal as possible at each step giving the person more opportunities to repent and change until finally the community as a whole says, look, we have no reason to believe that you're really a part of this community. Does that make sense? Okay, so that means the ultimate say resides with the community as a whole as to whether or not people are members of the community. So here's sort of our backwards engineering of the logic. If that's true that people have the say to remove a person from the congregation as a whole, then if it comes to removing a person from an office for some sin, we think that the same authority rests with the congregation as a whole. If that's true, then it is true that that means, shouldn't they have a say in putting that person there? Instead of only waiting until you want to punish them to get rid of them? And if that's true, then you would think you would find that in Scripture. We think we find it in the Bible. We think we find it there. If you look in Acts chapter 1, when the apostles are looking for a new apostle to take the place of Judas, they don't just pick whatever guy and bam, done. That's our guy. That's not the way they do it. Instead they communicate to the congregation the need and the purpose and then the qualifications for the replacement and then let them present options. Then only once the congregation has presented options do the apostles themselves, and we won't talk about the use of drawing lots for now, but then only then do the apostles choose a man amongst their final candidates brought to them from the people and set that person in office. And just so we're not left alone with that as the sole example, once again, in Acts chapter 6, although they're not deacons, I mean, although they're not elders, they may be deacons, maybe proto-deacons, something that would eventually become deacons, we see the same process where there's a need, the apostles tell the people what the qualifications should be and then it's the people who bring forth the candidates and then the and then there's even no choosing amongst them it's just oh these are your guys okay lay hands on and put them in office we here are generally c- convinced that this is the the right process of setting people in office and removing them from office that the congregation affirms those people who are in leadership, members. This is one of the reasons why membership is so important, is that you have said, we're with this community of believers, we agree with what you're doing, and we want to be a part of how that works. And so then you get a say in who gets to be in those positions, and how how that unfolds. While there's much more, I could say I will stop at this point and see if there are any questions.